Welcome to GeekSpeak. Today, fake images undergo existential crisis. Welcome to GeekSpeak. I'm Lyle Troxel. I'm a software engineer at Netflix and a podcaster of multiple podcasts. I've been busy lately. Sorry the shows have not been consistent here on this lovely 19 years of GeekSpeak. Today on the program, Miles Elam. He's a software engineer working out of Santa Cruz, California, and also takes care of goats and a small child. Howdy. How's it going? Good. And we also have Mr. Brian Young. He's also a father. He works out of Palo Alto as a software engineer doing Swift and iOS development. Hello, Brian. Hey, Lyle. And today we're going to talk a bit about some AI stuff that's freaking me out. Miles, please introduce this crazy photo system. What, what, what is going on with these pictures? They are referred to as GANs, Generative Adversarial Network. Describe what they do. What do they produce? They produce photorealistic faces. They produce the face of a person who doesn't exist. And when you say photorealistic, it's not like a rendered photorealistic. It really looks photorealistic. Yeah, and these aren't 3D objects or anything. These are just composites of 2D image neural net magic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is that a good description? Right. Although I, it wouldn't put, I wouldn't put it past them to figure out Here's how to generate it and then how to map it to uh, like figure out where the jaw structure is after the fact and then go, okay, now let's do a 3D mapping around But there. But the truth is what it's doing right now is a neural net that knows how a good image is and it produces a good image. Yes. And so the net can be trained by finding bad images and basically not doing that. <laughs> I mean, Brian, you have a year, years of graphic arts history. You used to work at Pixar. You know a lot about 3D rendering and stuff. This kind of stuff is different, right? Yeah, it, it, it's fundamentally different. And it, it breaks my mind to think that a, a machine learning system is generating something. Usually when we think about AI, machine learning, we're thinking about it interpreting something that uh, we can interpret and making sense of it and figuring out what language it is, figuring out... Uh, if it's a cat or a dog. If it's a cat or a dog, categorizing. But we're not used to doing it the opposite way where you're feeding all of these images into the system and it is making something entirely new. It's it's pulling elements and colors and structures out of those images and reassembling them into something that did not exist in in any real way in those images. And we're not talking about these images being like always just a white background with neutral lighting or anything. They have shadow and highlights. Like it looks like it's been ta- it looks like a snapshot of somebody. And as a photographer who's, you know, tried in the past like take a, two group shots and get the one that doesn't have the smile, you know, have the closed eyes in them and you're kind of cropping in Photoshop, it's hard to do that when you take an exact same angle and get it to look right. But when you're talking about completely desperate photos mixed together in some mash and then you're like, yeah, the sun looks like it's high noon in this picture or it's on the horizon. Wow, maybe this was taken at a sunset. Like the lighting to me does not seem artifice at all. Right. In, in fact, in order for it to assemble these, it has to the, – the algorithm has to have some – I hesitate saying understanding, but it has to create a image that is consistent in the same ways that the images that were fed into it were consistent. Mm-hmm. So – the images that you feed into these will have lighting from the left or from the right, or it'll have uh, 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 certain kinds of backgrounds. It'll have a certain sheen on the skin. It'll have a certain color of skin, depending on how varied your original source uh, training images are. And there's this great website that just generates a new one of these all the time. I don't know if it's generated, it just has a large collection of them, because I don't know how long it actually takes to generate these these things. But you can click on this website and keep on seeing new images. 
which is creepy because you really feel like they're real photos. Right, but you also have to take into advantage advances that come over time. Like, for example, the original Toy Story, the movie, um, took days or weeks to generate a lot of those scenes to render them. Just took. Yeah, the, the, there were there were individual frames that um, took in the twenty four hour range. Yeah, I, I can say that confidently. Right, and now. Uh, how long ago what, were those movies when they first came out? Anyway. When did you start working for? <laughs> <laughs> that was ninety five. That was the okay. beginning of my CG career. Yeah. So, so thirty years later, wait, is that twenty years later? Twenty years later, about how long would you think that would take to render? Now that we have GPUs, yeah, certainly with the graphics cards now, you can make those images in Toy Story in real time. Right. So, with that in mind, with that knowledge in mind, this is what makes me worry about these GANs. Is that Right now, yeah, they probably do take a while to render and they do some post-processing like that. In 20 years, are we going to see them generated in real time in whatever well, environment they how, want? I know that this tech comes out of NVIDIA only because um, we have a colleague, a friend of ours um, who works in NVIDIA and he's talked about this tech before with me. And so it must be hardware intensive. To your point that it will change over time and be easier, sure. Well, besides the fact that, yeah, sure, maybe someone at home wouldn't be able to generate them at will, you know, themselves. Uh, I think that they would eventually. But my concern is that right now we have an issue with that notion of fake news. We have the notion of like so – I actually came across some stuff on Twitter recently where someone was taking some really uh, sloppy Photoshop job to say here's this Louisiana Confederate uh, – uh, African Americans fighting for the Confederate Army, and really it was no. This was a Union unit, and they had just cropped the image so that it didn't include the Union officer that was, you know, in, in charge of them. He just happened to be wearing drab you know, clothing, and you could kind of detect it by a sight. You're like, oh, I know what's going on there, right? And they had like Klan rallies where they changed the banner so it said it was a Democratic Party instead of right, right, what right. it was, and it was in Madison, Wisconsin, that type yeah. of thing. But I saw that as being this is where we live right now and we can spot them. What happens when you don't have the ability to do reverse Google search? Right. Um, which is what people do now. They go look and go like, hey, wait, wait that's this other photo. Right. This, this fake photo this is, is actually this real yeah, photo. Yeah. This is now generating from whole cloth. You're saying that right now the way you detect truth is you find the original. And you're like, well, this original predates. Google's indexed this original and therefore you know – even if it was a perfect Photoshop job, if it's using elements from somewhere else and the other thing showed up on the net first, then you can go, oh, well, it's a fake. But what you're saying is if there is no baseline, if there's no real baseline, then any story could be generated like these faces could be generated. That's part of it. It's talking about we cannot do it based upon just what we see or hear because we've seen the generative algorithms with regard to audio as well. And, and even with generative – I mean it's, it's very easy to get people to uh, – you know, there's voice actors that can emulate their voice and sound like somebody else anyway. Even if you don't use an AI to do that, which you now can do stitching of another person's right. voice. But also that, that notion of what we see with Grand Moff Tarkin and Princess Leia in um, Yeah, but we can Rogue detect One. that pretty easily. We can now, but they were – that but was then again, Toy much Story, better. But then again, Toy Story 1, we could tell it was animated too. Right. right. It was much better. Better than what had happened before, and you give it ten years, the movies are going to be doing much better. And then give it another time, you're going to so start having. So when it you see this website, generalized. which is by the way, this the website is thispersondoesnotexist.com, all one word, 
And hey, they got a certificate, so it's at HTTPS. This person does not exist.com. Just go fresh that a few times. It's worth it. Um, I'm looking at a picture of a person that I totally, I believe that woman exists. Um, when you see that, you go, this soon will be animated completely with an artificial voice. And how right. do I trust reality? Right. And this comes down to really what it comes down to with regard to news is who is considered trustworthy. Yes. Who do we trust? Who is – if we see some but random blog that been gives – that's the case. Well, if we see some random blog, um, you know, deepstateusa.com, we, we – well, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> then we kind of go like, oh, grain of salt. Okay, what do you uh, – sounds like conspiracy theory. If the um, – USA Today says it. We go well. That seems like it might be more legit. If you have, you know, the the Boston Globe says it, you go. That probably happened. And okay. right now, uh, more so than in recent than in my living memory, in general, people don't trust the news. Like there is a market erosion of trust, even I, I, in the papers of note. I, I get that, but record. I don't think that is. I don't think that's based off of imagery manipulation of that sort. No, it's not. It's information control. No, it's talking about what I'm talking about is we've eroded that sense of who you can trust, and now we are introducing this level of, and now we can present whatever imagery. I get we that. Want. The thing is, though, we have – I mean I've seen footage of like, well, that cop obviously should go to jail. He just killed that person for no reason, you know, beating someone mm-hmm. and it's all on tape and you're like, yep, that's real. We all know it's real and yet the courts are like, nope, it was fine. It was justified or uh, some time off. You know, We've seen a lot of the imagery does not relate to the world we want to exist, right? It's the opposite. It's showing something horrible that then has no consequence and the, and the subjugation of people being obviously and blatant for people and people still don't accept that. Even though the imagery is there, they don't accept that. Like, well, the court said, like, people don't use imagery as the endo fact, like the, the, the absolute truth of what is right and wrong or what how society works. So I don't know how much it matters in some sense that now a fake image of the same type could be generated. If you want to believe what you want to believe anyway, why does it matter? So really, it's just underscoring the fact that our society needs to come to terms with how do we trust information overall, but it doesn't change the game at all. Well, it's creepy. I mean, I don't know. I don't mean to shoot down the idea that this is different. I think it is at some level. Um, okay, for, right now, is it perfect? Can we actually detect? We, do we know this is an artificial image? Humans can't, but computer, can a computer algorithm figure out that this woman I'm looking at right now doesn't really exist? I would say yes. I see things. I see something is wrong with her teeth. Okay. Yeah. What's going on here? <laughs> so, along with this site that shows you a generated image of a person, there's there's um, people out there that are actually cataloging the, the 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 mistakes that these algorithms are generating. There's this great medium post which shows you first the images that were coming out of this in 2014, so you can see where it started. Okay, and, and where it started, it, it looks like you're, <laughs> everybody has <laughs> 30 insiders. <laughs> You've got faces that are recognizable as faces, but they look like somebody poured water over top of the photograph and smeared it, or uh, that uh, somebody. Oh man, they're disturbing. <laughs> somebody had a Pica- somebody had Picasso uh, do a Photoshop number I, on them. I kind of love the 2014 ones. 
But uh, it then gives you a peek in how far we've come. And, <gasps> oh, my gosh. And this post has been updated over uh, a period of time uh, that even some of the mistakes that it's cataloging are no longer as visible as they used to be. But the kind of mistakes that you can look for, and this will become, I don't know, a skill that we all need to have, or at least those going to uh, court to uh, identify whether this truly is a, a real photograph, are things like um, if you look in the details of straight hair from, you know, the overall image, it looks right. But when you get up close, you can start to see artifacting in it. It kind of looks like somebody's painting the hair. Um, so you might see a waviness to the, uh, to the lines of the hair that you never see in naturally straight hair. Uh, the backgrounds get really interesting because here you have this catalog of faces being fed into it where the, the, the backgrounds are probably more varied and more, right. uh, Uncatalogable, and there's something about the AI, the, about the deep learning system that actually understands a face. So when it gets a face and hair and all that, it's kind of able to know what that is at some level. And when I say no, I'm putting quotes around that. Um, it's able to use that, but the background is not part of its system. It's not, and you get artifacts that end up looking like Dolly's been painting in the background of these. That's cool, and you're, they're cropped enough that it may not be distracting. But if you uh, want, let, let your eye wander around the edge of the image in the background, it, you start to realize that, that that probably doesn't ever exist. Like maybe it's a smear off of the hair of the, uh, of the subject. Um, now, one, one of my favorite artifacts that you get out of this is uh, what happens with messy hair. And uh, the reason why I like this is um, months ago, a year ago, when we first got iPhone 10s that were doing this artificial bokeh, yeah, this this artificial depth of field. Um, one of the hardest things for it to deal with is the fine hairs because uh, it's doing a, a blurring algorithm based on whether that pixel is is in one depth or another, and you get this really unnatural edges to somebody's head. And um, the the messy hair artifacting is not always on the on the edges of the head. Sometimes it's across the forehead of the skin, but it creates these these matted. Um, uh, in one case, it looks kind of like dreadlocked hair, which the rest of the hair isn't dreadlocked. Um, Just right on the forehead. Uh, right on the forehead. Maybe it, it, weird makes, it makes them look like they've got greasy uh, a forehead that has the hair sticking to it. And the rest of the image is so naturalistic and not greasy. <laughs> so it sticks out. Um, there, there are problems in the teeth. In this uh, article, by the way, it says this gain was trained on a subset of Celebrity A, which contains 200,000 images of 10,000 celebrity faces. Which is also why you get a lot of these shiny, bright, white teeth. You get, <laughs> you, you, oh, the general population doesn't have that, huh? Well, no, just meaning that you, you get poses uh, yeah. and, and you get a look that is typical of a Celebrity glossy look. magazine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, you, there are things that um, you're going to be able to pick up pretty easily because humans are so attuned to looking at faces is sometimes the eyes are not symmetrically aligned uh, well. Well, that's um, true with people too. It is, but that's the definition of beauty for uh, most people mm -hmm. is the more symmetrical a face is, the more people tend to think that person is beautiful. That's why you've got a good side and a bad side. <laughs> um, Miles, all these problems that are emerging with this though are just right now because four years out they'll be perfect right yeah, uh, they'll be good enough that yeah for all intents and purposes yes perfect and maybe we'll think of them as uh, we can identify them because they're too good yeah 
uh, because humanity ends up being more flawed, just like a, a natural diamond is has more defects than a culture diamond does now. As a side note, I remember working on a lot of um, uh, film projects where the director, the uh, the lighting director, would say, "We got to fix this." I was like, "But, but that's what." That's what uh, you see in real film. You, that's what you see in a real movie. But, yeah, but reality isn't good enough. We got to make this. We got to make this look. <laughs> what better. kind of things are you talking about? Like oh, um, a object which is has some amount of sheen to it. If you're on set and you're actually uh, filming a movie, um, what they'd probably do is they they try to notice that object and they uh, dust it up or yes. they they put it in shadow. I, so I was a props guy for film. The one film I really worked on. And one of the things I did was in a scene, stuff looked too shiny. And I just took – I walked around with brown hairspray, like hairspray for dyeing your hair for like you know Halloween costume stuff and just sprayed stuff with this brown mist <laughs> to make it look more dull. And, and when you're doing uh, you know simulated renderings on computers, you're going to get the same things. Uh, but of course uh, it's the same process. You're going to go in there and you're going to darken it up. But what, what are you darkening though? Well, you the original thing. Or are you, you adding could, a? You could do any sort of cheat. You could change the material itself, even though uh, you know you're making the material different between one shot to another. Nobody's going to notice that. The important part is they don't notice something's brighter and pulls wait, their attention so, away. Wait, so the, the, the lighting director is saying this shiny thing in one scene's fine, but the texture's wrong from a different angle because sure. it's too shiny. Yeah, yeah, that kind and of so, stuff gets done. So all you're the actually time. mutating the the what is it called that you're modifying on that 3D image? Yeah, you're, you're the shader. You're cha- you're changing the properties of the material or you're uh you're <laughs> a friend of ours who's an actual stage lighting director always gets um, driven nuts when i talk about this <laughs> or you you could even put a negative light on it and you suck just, light, just project suck, the light on it suck like an o light away or or something like that but but the danger of being able to change anything is then you want to change everything to make it uh, more than uh, yeah. more than perfect in your mind's eye is this ability to generate artificial imagery going to put us into a state where no one can, no one can know the absolute truth? It's not about no one knowing the truth. Um, that whole saying of you can fool some of the people all the time and all the people some of the time. It's a question of is it enough to cause a major disruption, destabilization? We already have a problem in society and education. I was going to say the same thing, but that's already the case. Go on, yeah. <laughs> we already have a problem where uh, we are not able to look at evidence unless you're really schooled at critical thinking of looking at evidence that is truly productive. Even if you are good at looking at evidence, right? The human mind just isn't good at knowing truth. Right. So, I mean, I, I'm hopeful. Our society is going to have to figure out how to build reputation and build trust. Uh, no, it doesn't have to. We not, hope it will. No, no. It, doesn't, it really doesn't have to. <laughs> I am hopeful because if we don't, the, the alternative is, is pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of my point. All right. Hi, it's Lyle. It's after the show. Uh, I'm editing this episode together. And in listening to it, I realized we never really did do a good job of describing how these GANs work, these generative adversarial networks actually work. I hinted at the beginning how they worked, and I knew that from other learnings. But during the show, I asked a couple times, and I've actually edited out those questions because they were futile, how they actually work to Miles. So then I went ahead and uh, read the article a bit describing how they work, describing how the system, how the two systems play off each other. And then I went ahead and asked Miles to explain it. So 
Miles, we got kind of like what the problem space for a society is that these things would be generated perfectly and stuff, but I still don't know. And I understand that there's 200,000 images of 10,000 people in them, whatever. How does a GAN actually work? What does this Yeah, don't thing? ask me because I can't really repeat. You, you read it <laughs> off. You understand it, but. He's not playing. Well, <laughs> jerk. <laughs> I, I honestly don't know. I'm just looking at the pretty pictures and going, wait, what? <laughs> As fun as that is, uh, we still don't have an answer. Well, the long and the short of it is that Ben Jaffe, who's not on this episode of Geek Speak, but is a regular geek on the program for years and years and years, has another podcast called Linear Digressions. And Linear Digressions talks about AI and neural nets and things of that nature with Katie Malone, who's a scientist. And so Ben and Katie have an episode on generative adversarial networks. And I asked them, and they're totally cool with me playing it right here. So instead of me hashing out exactly how these systems work, I'm going to go ahead and play this cool episode of Linear Digressions. The title of this episode is Neural Nets Play Cops and Robbers, a.k.a. Generative Adversarial Networks. Now, they're not talking about image networks here. They're not talking about two AIs that understand image uh, and facial recognition stuff. But we've talked before about facial recognition stuff. We've talked about how you train a deep learning neural net to detect facial features or detect image features and then detect facial features and then actually understand if that's a male or a female or if that's a cat or a dog, that image stuff. So you can just imagine adversarial networks, which this whole uh, episode of linear regressions will cover, using instead of the um, money scenario that they have, just imagine that's actually can be done also with any neural net and uh, in the generative, the story we're talking about today on GeekSpeak, of course, it's done with an image one. After this episode of Linear Digressions, I'll just close the show out. So enjoy Linear Digressions, Neural Nets Play, Cops and Robbers, a.k.a. Generative Adversarial Networks. And thank you, Ben and Katie, for the episode. So I, I think you're the one who should probably start us off because I actually don't know very much about this. Sure, yeah. Generative adversarial networks. First of all, we should acknowledge that uh, this was a listener suggestion from a listener who's actually a friend of mine, Tim Head. Thank you so much. This was a this was a fun one. Tim is also a friend of the show. He's been one of our earliest listeners, I think, and always has very good feedback. So it's a pleasure to actually uh, pick up one of his suggestions and see what we can do with it. We should, like, make t-shirts and give one to him. That's not a bad idea. Yeah. I don't know what I'd put on the t-shirt, but... Um, t-shirts cost money, too, so... Yeah. Anywho, uh, <laughs> gen- generative adversarial networks. Right. Um, so, this actually harkens... We're going to harken back to a couple of things that we've talked about uh, before and some new stuff. Um, maybe a useful way to start with this is to unpack the name of the algorithm though. Mm-hmm. So generative adversarial networks. So the first part of that generative is a type of algorithm that we haven't really talked about so much before uh, generative algorithms. It sounds like, it sounds like a network that would be generating things. Is that right? That is right. So okay. usually machine learning algorithms, you can split into one of two buckets broadly defined. There's generative algorithms and discriminative algorithms. Mm. And discriminative algorithms are just trying to tell the difference between something and something else. And generative algorithms, you can potentially be actually making examples of the thing that you're trying to study. Another way of of trying to articulate this is that a discriminative algorithm is going to look at a set of information, uh, like 
the pixels in an image, let's say. And from that information, it's going to try to calculate the probability that this image is an image of a panda or a coffee cup or a cat. And so it's what we would say is this the probability of X given Y, where Y is the data that you're putting into the algorithm and X is the label that you're trying to get out. Right. So it's it's not it's not generating anything other than uh, a classifier, basically saying, yes, this is a panda or no, this is not a panda. Yeah. And it's not right. It's not trying to say anything that's deeper than that, really. Like, mm-hmm. what is a panda? But a generative algorithm does that's start the, to go in that direction. It that's says, a deep question. Yeah, yeah. What is a panda? Right. Right. What is the probability that I get this set of pixels in this picture at the same time that it is a panda and Mm. it's uh it starts to get into issues of like can you actually model the underlying dynamics of the thing that you're trying to study so this is something that we would use a lot in physics where we're trying to actually generate examples for ourselves of particle collisions so that we can study them and and help ourselves understand the the real collisions that we're seeing in the detector. And underlying these generative algorithms, we have basically the laws of physics that are helping us run those simulations. And so when you have the laws of physics, it it sort of works. Um, But if you're trying to do something that is harder to quantify or more complex or less well understood, then generative algorithms can be really, really difficult to work with because they they do need to sort of have a working internal model of like, what is the thing that you're studying? Yeah, there is no laws of pandaness, right? Like what, what are the laws that govern what a panda is at, at its core? Whereas like, what is physics? Not necessarily an easy question, but definitely one that's been uh, quite a bit more studied. And um, we actually have equations that we can apply to the real world that uh, with a high degree of certainty simulate what the real world will do. And so then when we're doing machine learning, usually usually what we're trying to do is actually discrimination. We're trying to solve a fairly straightforward problem of like, what is this thing that I'm looking at? And in that context, discriminative algorithms usually do much better than generative ones. And so that's why so much of our emphasis so far has been on discriminative algorithms, is that's just where a lot of the attention in the field has been. However, uh, in this example, we're also opening ourselves up to the generative side of things. Uh, so let's talk about what you might want to do with a generative algorithm. And this gets into the second part of the name, the adversarial uh, term, mm, generative yeah. a- adversarial networks. So this brings back to mind a previous episode that we actually did. I think it was released just a few months ago uh, called Hacking Neural Nets. Do you remember that one? I do. So in that one, what was going on was there had been some studies into neural nets and what the researchers had found is let's say you have a neural net that's trying to do image classification. And so you feed it a picture of, let's say a cat, and usually it will say that it's a cat and maybe occasionally it will make mistakes and say that it's a dog or a panda or whatever else. But sometimes you can also, if you find just the right kind of noise looking picture, you can feed in this picture that looks like just random pixels set to like whatever value, but the neural net will say with very high confidence, this is the cat. Right. And that that's because fundamentally the neural net is not doing image processing the way a human would do. And so to a human, 
this is clearly not a cat. This just looks like random static. But because of whatever the way the neural net, however it actually works under the hood, that static just pushes its buttons in just the right way that it decides, yes, this is a picture of a cat or a panda or whatever, when in fact it's not. And in the year or two since, you know, sort of this property of neural nets has been discovered, there's been some work in trying to understand what is actually going on underneath the hood with the neural net. Like, what are the properties of a neural net that make it susceptible to what we call adversarial examples? These things that you've kind of tuned specially so that it's it's not the image that the neural net will classify it as, but the neural net still very reliably classifies it that way. Like, what what characterizes that situation? What combination of image plus algorithm do you need to have something that's going to be susceptible to adversarial examples? And and briefly, uh, when we say adversarial, we're not necessarily talking about some external party that's trying to fool the neural net. This might just be researchers who are working on the neural network, uh, network and trying to make it better at doing what it does. Or even researchers who put together another algorithm that tests uh, their discriminative network. Yeah, there's no there's no malice involved here. It's mostly right. just studies right now. Um, yeah. Although you could imagine that in the future there there could be. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the more we rely on n- neural networks for uh, important things, the more susceptible we will be to those neural networks being, um, I guess, compromised. Yeah, that there's more incentive to be able to to hack the neural nets as the neural right. nets become more important. Yeah, for sure. And so in, in the last uh, couple of years, there's been a lot of research that's been going on at University of Montreal and at Google, uh, most of it by a researcher named Ian Goodfellow, where he's been studying this exact issue, like, am I able to reliably create adversarial examples? What are the things that characterize the neural nets that are susceptible to them? And to make a, a long story short, it seems like the thing that makes a neural net susceptible to these things is that the neural net, the internal structure of the neural net is full of linear uh, activation functions or linear neurons. And that means that uh, there's they're really um, easily trained using backpropagation algorithms, basically that with a, an, a change in the input of a certain size and direction, that the change in the output is reasonably easy to compute. Uh, that's kind of one of the things that happens when you have a linear network, whereas a nonlinear network, potentially small changes in the input can lead to really radical changes in the output. That's right. Yeah. So he, he finds that this is, this is going through this far too quickly to fully give it justice, but basically he's found out that there are certain types of, of nets, neural nets, um, in particular ones that are easy to train are the ones that are the most susceptible to the adversarial network. Oh, interesting. Right. And so here's the thing where he sort of, ties ties everything together and it's it's really pretty cool as he says okay our susceptibility to these adversarial examples is kind of goes hand in hand with how easy the the network is to to train because it's these linear networks and does that tell us anything about how easy it could potentially be to generate them right because you could have a generative algorithm that is potentially easy to train because it's using the same sort of structure. And can you make this generative algorithm that creates adversarial examples, sends them over to the discriminative network, and then the discriminative network tries to tell whether an example is 
adversarial and, and constructed by a neural net, or if it's a real legitimate picture of a cat, um, discriminative network tries to tell the difference between those two cases and then sends its decisions back to the generative network, which then uses uh, sort of the decisions of the, the discriminative network to itself make progressively better generated uh, adversarial examples. That's really cool. Okay, so so basically you've got this this network that's generating let's say cat pictures and you've got let's say counterfeiting uh, money. I think that's a better example. Oh, sure. Okay. So you're basically saying you've got these two players. You've got uh two networks. One of them is generating uh examples and one of them is uh, looking at those examples and deciding whether they're real or not. And so, like, I, I guess you could imagine it almost like you've got a money counterfeiter, let's say, that's trying to generate counterfeit money, and then you've got a bank which is trying to identify whether money is counterfeit. And so the bank gets the output of the counterfeiter because the counterfeiter gives all of the counterfeit money to the bank. And then the counterfeiter also knows whether or not they've been successful by whether the bank accepts the money. And so you've got this cycle, which means that the bank can improve, as can the counterfeiter. Or the um, in, in this case, we could say the discriminative algorithm can improve uh, at recognizing cat pictures, and the generative algorithm can improve at generating pictures of cats. Yeah, so in this analogy, it would be like the counterfeiters might start out with just a photocopier. Right. And then they photocopy some money. They send it over to a bank to try to deposit it. They haven't done a particularly good job. And so there's, uh, the, the bank does a, um, you know, a reasonably good job of figuring out which ones are the counterfeit bills and which ones aren't. But a few, a few counterfeit bills might get through just because of dumb luck or something. And so then, yeah, the counterfeiters get this information back that, okay, some of these examples worked. A lot of them didn't. Let's try to improve our generation process in a way that seems to address maybe the the um, the information that we get back about what um, what makes it through and what doesn't. So now instead of having photocopiers, let's say they're doing color photocopies and they've they've made an investment in like slightly nicer paper, um, and so then they send over their better counterfeit bills to the bank. And the bank now has a slightly harder task, but they also have some experience in like knowing what counterfeit bills look like. And so they're again going to take some of the bills. They're going to send a bunch of them back. Um, they're getting smarter at determining what the counterfeit looks like. The counterfeiters are also getting better at figuring out how to make them. And so, yeah, as you kind of pass things back and forth between the discriminative network and the generative network, both of them are getting better. And at the end of it, what you get out is like a really good counterfeiting machine and right. also a bank that's really good at detecting counterfeits, right? Like both of them that get better. Now, the bank and the counterfeiter um, are kind of a metaphor for what's going on, right? Um, these networks can be doing all kinds of things like generating pictures of cats or generating other kinds of data. Uh, and there's actually an evolution going on, uh, which is perhaps even deeper than the counterfeiter and the banker example uh, would, would imply. But here's the thing that, that kind of confuses me. At the beginning of this process, neither the generative nor the discriminative algorithms are perfect. Let's just go with pictures of cats for this example, and we'll say that the generative algorithm is generating pictures of cats, but it's also generating pictures of, I don't know, we'll just say it generates some pictures that look like static to a human, but the discriminative algorithm thinks they look like cats, okay? Mm -hmm. So now we've got some pictures 
that look like cats that are getting through that the discriminative algorithm is saying, yeah, that's a cat. Thumbs up. But we've also got pictures that look like static. And those are getting through and the discriminative algorithm is saying, yeah, that looks like a cat. That goes back around to the generative algorithm. So it makes sense that the pictures that look like cats uh, look more like cats. The generative algorithm will uh, evolve from those pictures and improve upon those pictures uh, and iterate from there. But wouldn't the same thing happen with the static pictures that the discriminative algorithm thinks are cats? And I guess the, the question that's behind all of this is, why would why would they both get better at identifying the real cats, like more get better faster at identifying the real cats than identifying cats in the static images? Right. So you're kind of saying why at the end of this process, why is the generative algorithm giving me pictures that look like cats, like literally look like cats to me as a human, as opposed to just really finely tuned pictures of static that for some reason the right. the uh, the discriminative algorithm is is susceptible to them and, and classifies them as cats. Yeah, that's that's a good question. And I think basically what's going on is that the random static noise that gets classified as cats, that's a very finely tuned and in some ways a brittle solution. So if you were to take one of those images and just randomly flip, let's say, 1% or 5% of the pixels, you just you know, reassign them to a random value, or you take the Mm -hmm. opposite of what value they have right now, um, then it's not going to work. So you really Uh, found like just the pins in this lock that need to be pushed so that you can open it. Whereas for the generative algorithm that's like really on its game and generating pictures of cats, um, it's much more robust. So you can, if I were to walk up to each of these two algorithms, one of which makes pictures that look like cats and one of which makes noise that can sometimes be misclassified as cats. For the noise picture, I would say like, okay, sweet, give me another noise picture that looks like a cat. And it would have to work really hard and kind of handcraft an example. Whereas the generative algorithm that's just able to make pictures that look like cats, it's like, okay, no problem. And it spits out another one. So it it's kind of figured out what a cat is in a way that, like we said, is more robust and that um, actually makes things that in that case look like cats instead of having to find just these weird little pathological examples of noise that can get misclassified. Mm. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think it does. So so fundamentally, the fake cats, the static pictures, which happen to push all the right buttons for the discriminative algorithm. There's just many fewer of them than there are like pictures of things that actually look like cats right. <laughs> that get classified yeah. as cats. Yeah. And then in addition to that, they're more susceptible to changes. So if you were to change a little bit of it, then then the uh, discriminative algorithm might not be tricked as easily as if you were to change a picture of a cat a little bit. uh, The discriminative algorithm would be like, yeah, actually, that's still a cat. I suspect that's right. Yeah. I mean, this is a field that is new enough and still has, you know, a lot of the basic results have been demonstrated, but some of Mm -hmm. the side studies haven't been done. So I'm a little bit speculating here as to what might be going on. And I'm I think that the real proof is in the pudding on this one, that when you actually run the generative algorithm, it makes pictures that look like cats and not pictures that look like noise. So to a certain extent, we're also uh, trusting that it works because we can actually look at the pictures that come out of it and they look sensible. The proof is in the pudding. Now now I want to go get pudding. Well, it's lunchtime. We should go get pudding. It's, it's about lunchtime. Awesome. Thank you, Katie. 
Uh, thank you. And uh, thanks again to Tim. This was a really fun... I think the way that he tweeted this at me was, it's like Neural Nets playing cops and robbers. Uh, Ooh, cool. Which was intriguing to me and uh, lived up to my expectations. Linear Digressions is a Creative Commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at LinDigressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Well, thanks, Katie and Ben. Great episode. I really appreciate it. And thanks to Brian and Miles for doing the first half of the program with me. I'm Lyle Troxel. This has been Geek Speak. And I just want to let you know that we have about 25 people on our patron page. And those 25 people are giving a dollar, two dollars, three dollars, some even more per episode. So every time I post an episode, I, I make a little post up on Patreon and say, charge these people. And uh, they donate some money. And that money I use to cover the show costs and also to advertise to grow the audience. So thank you very much, everyone that's participating in giving us money every episode to make this program work. If you would like to join us, please do so. You can learn again at geekspeak.org support. And of course, if you would like to write a review on your favorite podcasting archiving system of note, I suggest iTunes, even if you don't subscribe through there, because it actually matters. Go up and write us a good review, share with some friends, spread the word that we're doing this fun program. And thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it.